On this week's Behind the Idea, we talk with NYU professor Hizwath Damodaran about Amazon as part three of our mini-series. On last week's podcast, our guest Mark Penikoff, a Seeking Alpha editor, talked about how he's watching for continued growth in Amazon. Professor Damodaran sounded a cautionary note. I, I think you need to stop looking at growth rates. It's a very dangerous thing to do when you're looking at a company the size of Amazon. But despite going short Amazon, he points out that this is no tragic story that he has to tell. This isn't a pessimistic story. This is an incredibly optimistic story. No company of this size in history has been able to pull this off. Indeed, if anything, Demodoran's tone is consistently respectful of Amazon's potential, as when he talks about the way he views his short position. This is not an investment I want. I don't want to be short on Amazon for the long term. I mean, all it'll do, even if I'm right, is create ulcers. We've been exploring the limits to Amazon's potential, what makes the company unique, and whether investors should get on board or stand in the growth train's way. Professor Demodoran's insight is as valuable as anybody's in getting to those answers, even if it just raises more questions talking with him. We spoke with him on November 6th. Without further ado, let's get into the discussion. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. And we're continuing our mini-series on Amazon. We're excited to welcome back Professor Azwat Damodaran, who joined us back in May as one of our first guests talking about Facebook. This time we're going to be talking about Amazon, about the company's continual growth story and what that means for valuing the firm and for considering an investment either long or short. Before we get started, quickly disclosures. I have no positions in Amazon or I, I expect any tech companies that we discuss. Professor Demodoran has a short position in Amazon and Mike currently has a short position or has a position in PSQ, which is a short QQQ, short NASDAQ position. So um, nothing on the podcast is meant as investment advice of any sort. And with that said, Professor Demodoran, welcome on Behind the Idea. Glad to be here. So where I just want to start is reviewing your work over the years. You've talked about how you've covered Amazon back from inception. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about is how you've persistently underestimated the company's revenue growth and the price of the company, at least, if not the value of the firm. And I'm just curious, how have you adjusted your process over time to better capture what Amazon, how to value the, the company? I think first, you've got to be very careful about not over adjusting for mistakes you've made. Because let's face it, let's start off in 1998. Let's say you valued 100 growth companies. And let's say you fast forward 20 years and you look at the 10 most successful companies in the, in the market. If you've done your valuation right in 1998, in 2018, you should have underestimated revenues, earnings, and cash flows at the 20 best companies. And you should have overestimated revenues, earnings, and cash flows at the 20 worst companies. The nature of valuation is not that you're going to find every winner, but that you're trying to find the next winner. That said, Amazon has been a surprise in the making. I mean, I, I tell people I've learned almost everything I know about valuing young growth companies in the years that I valued Amazon. When I first valued Amazon in 1998, it was a startup. 
It was a book re- an online book retailer. I've seen the company kind of morph and change and morph and change. And I've seen it go through multiple iterations. I bought Amazon four times. I've sold Amazon four times. This is the first time. So at the end of September was the first time in my life in 20 years that I've actually shorted Amazon. And I'll be glad to talk about why I made that decision. But this is a company that has surprised me. But in a sense, the surprises have come from it's redefining its business model to become bigger and bigger. The story keeps getting bigger. And the question is, is there a limit to the story? So maybe let's just jump. What made this time different? Was it the fact that it was, was it purely a quantitative, the widest differential between their value and their price or what why was this time different no i think it's just i mean i think in a sense macro for amazon as long as it controlled its own destiny managed to find ways to succeed and for much of its life it's controlled its own destiny and its own destiny in what sense it fights i mean it can compete against anybody in the world i tell people that amazon is the fiercest competitor on the face of the earth so it can it can take on and beat almost every competitor. But that said, at this point in time, I think Amazon has become so successful and so big that it's attracting the wrong type of attention, political attention, regulatory attention. And that fight is tougher to win because you're not fighting against Walmart anymore. You're fighting against the antitrust guys. You're fighting against lawyers. You're in court. This is a fight that's much more difficult to win. I know it's not happened in the last month, but this is not a you know something I've projected would happen right away in October. I think though change is coming to Amazon. It's going to come from regulatory forces and governments looking at Amazon saying, this company is way too big, way too powerful, way too strong, not just for us as a government, but for the rest of the market. And that I think is what, if I were an Amazon investor, I'd be scared about is that because I remember when Microsoft went from being this incredibly great company to just a good company. It was when the antitrust guys came at them. They wanted to break up Microsoft. They didn't succeed. But the very fact that Microsoft was distracted by that fight for a couple of years meant that, you know, Microsoft couldn't do the things they wanted to do. That's a, that's a good point about the second level effect of the distraction. I wa- I'm curious about how you model all of this. So I want to, I want to kind of go through a couple modeling questions here. I'm curious about what it makes Amazon unique. It seems. And one of the things we've been talking about with other guests is that they seem to deliberately, they experiment, but they deliberately enter new markets and that it's not just small bets. They're bets that will be meaningful to the company. And so what their revenue growth driver five years from now might be, we don't maybe maybe something that's very small for them, maybe something they're not even in yet. And I'm curious how it seems like in your model, you gave them a high growth rate for five years, but then after in the sixth year, it looked like you're reverting to more or less a, a standard growth rate. And so I'm just curious, how do you think about that? Fa- the fact that Amazon essentially always seems to be pulling out a new, whether it's Amazon Web Services Whatever, how do you factor that into your model? I, I think you need to stop looking at growth rates. It's a very dangerous thing to do when you're looking at a company the size of Amazon. A 15% growth rate for Amazon is 45 additional billion dollars in revenues. So by the time you get to year six and you look at my 11% growth rate, that 11% growth rate in year six is an extra 40, 50 billion dollars in revenues. So 
I think with companies this size, using the growth rate as your gauge of how quickly the company is growing can very, very quickly get you into trouble. Take a look at the additional. So rather than look at the growth rate, look at the change in revenues I have in year six, year seven, year eight. I'm actually allowing Amazon to create or conquer entire new markets for the next 10 years. And even beyond 10 years, when you give them a 3% growth rate, it's a 400 to 500 billion dollar company. Three percent growth rate is still 15 additional billion dollars in revenues every year. This isn't a pessimistic story. This is an incredibly optimistic story. No company of this size in history has been able to pull this off. Amazon, if it pulls this off, and this is in my base case where I value them at 1255 per share, Amazon, if it pulls it off, will be a one of a kind company. So. Looking at percentage growth rates when you have a company that's scaling up as much as Amazon is, is incredibly dangerous to do. Jumping in on that, is there a kind of asymptote to any firm's growth? Is there a final limit to where a a company sort of has to decline? I know you use life cycle paradigm a fair amount. I mean, it's not a mathematical issue. The world is only so big. Right. I mean, it, 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 the limits here come from reality. I mean, you have a four hundred billion dollar company. You got to keep recreating growth every year. It's just mathematically, you can't keep. No company in history has ever been able to grow at a rate faster than the economy forever. Because I've heard this. So, I mean, I remember nineteen eighty one when I fu- when I first started valuing companies. I was told that IBM was such a great company, it would never grow the same growth rate as the economy. There will never be a stable growth company. Well, five years later, it was a stable growth company. Then I was told Walmart will never be a stable growth company. Microsoft will never be a stable growth company. Apple will never be a stable growth company. Mathematically, every company approaches the growth rate of the economy. Amazon has been special in being able to put it off for a much longer time period than most other companies. But you can't find math, fight math. Ultimately, your size catches up with you. It hasn't yet for Amazon. And in my valuation, I don't think it will for the next 10 years. But that's still a very optimistic story I'm saying about Amazon. So the the other function there is also the question of margins. And I think, and to, to me, your your margins actually are do strike me as optimistic. But I, I wonder how you just... Stepping back into the story, the story with Amazon seems to be that they continue to invest almost all of their profit into furthering their growth. And we, we may have more questions about that later, but would you consider your, I think your target operating margin is about 12 and a half percent. Like, how do you think, I guess, given that context where Amazon has that constant hunger to invest, how do you, how do you put a target margin or how do you get comfortable that they might not enter higher margin businesses or how do you sort of think through the best way to, to, to pick a target there? I think that uh, the, if you look at the Amazon success story, its biggest success has been on revenue growth. It's always been able to deliver the revenue growth and it's been able to do it easily. So I think that half of the story, it's always been successful. at. The half of the story that Amazon has always had trouble with is delivering profit margins, and it's deliberate. I've always called Amazon my field of dreams company. Field of dreams company, why? Because their, their, their basic story is, if we build it, it being revenues, they will come, profits. And they've been incredibly successful 
at getting markets to buy into that story. So the half of my story that I think is going to be tougher for Amazon to pull off is improving margins. I don't know whether you read the news story yesterday about Amazon shipping costs. Shipping costs, Amazon shipping costs last year were about $22 billion, mostly because of free shipping for Prime members. It's been incredibly useful in driving revenue growth for them, allowing them to grow revenues at rates that perhaps would have been unheard of for a company of their size. But it's also been very expensive. For us to talk about improving margins at Amazon, we have to talk about decisions that Amazon will make that will make its prime members pretty pissed off. Decisions about making shipping costs be something that customers bear. So there's no easy way for Amazon to improve its margins because it's it's trained us as customers to expect great deals. And those great deals have come at a cost for Amazon, whether it's a Kindle, whether it's Prime, they've sold stuff at below cost. And for their margins to improve, they have to figure out ways to, to, to take some of these benefits away. So I don't think it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be much more difficult to Amazon, for Amazon to build its margin side than at the revenue growth side. That said, though, you did mention something that I think is very interesting. If you look at um, earnings and cash flows for companies, usually young startups have negative earnings, they have negative free cash flows, and over time as they mature, their cash, their earnings turn positive first. And then about three or four years later, as the growth starts to level off, their cash flows turn positive. And if you look at Amazon from 1998 to 2010, they look like a conventional company. They start off with negative earnings and negative cash flows. And by 2010, their earnings were, uh, were positive. Their cash flows were starting to turn positive. So it was looking, it looked like they were going to follow the path of a typical growth company. But somewhere in 2011, they decided to reset the story. And if you look at their cash flows from 2011 through 2018, they look like the cash flows for a startup, a massive startup, but a startup. That is, I think, what makes Amazon different is almost like they went back to startup phase. And the way I think about it is for the first 12 or 13 years that I valued Amazon, I valued them as a retail company, a company that eventually would hit the ceiling in retails, and, and that would cause their growth to level up. Today, when I value Amazon, I value them as a disruption machine. They're not constrained to be a retail company. They can be in pretty much any market they want, whether it's financial services, whether it's retail. I mean, you name the business, Amazon can get in there. And that's what's given them the second win. The question is, can they convert the second win into profitability? And that's an open question. I want to stay with this. I'm looking at the bar chart that you put in your presentation mm -hmm. uh, about the net income and cash flows that shows this life cycle and then the left turn they take in 2011. And the first thing I want to ask you is that in 27, 2018 and, and uh, 13, it looks like net income and cash, cash flows have opposite signs. The company is gap profitable, but cash is flowing out. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing there in the chart? It's a little deceptive, and here's why. It's not deceptive in the sense they're trying to fool anybody, but there's been one business that Amazon has gotten into, which has been very different from the other business. It's been profitable from the start, and it's delivered high margins, and that's a cloud business. And if you take away the profits from the cloud business, you very quickly see that you don't get this, uh, this, this surge in profitability that you see in the numbers. It is the Amazon cloud business that has delivered the profitability. The problem with that business is right now it's very profitable, but everybody wants to be in, whether it's Microsoft. I mean, you, you name the companies. IBM wants to be in there. 
in my view, this is going to converge on being a commodity business sooner rather than later. And when that happens, those margins are going to subside. It's going to be a large business, but it's going to be a low margin business. So Amazon Cloud has been the, the, the mechanism for delivering profits. The other mechanism that Amazon has used that has made them a little more profitable is remember we talked about those shipping costs for longer, for much of its existence, Amazon depended on UPS and FedEx and USPS for the delivery of its packages. So its costs were in a sense out of its control. In the last few years, Amazon's biggest investments have been in logistics. They know they have to bring their shipping costs under control. They're investing heavily in logistics because of that. In fact, I think their biggest reason for their Whole Foods investment was not because they wanted to be in the grocery business. It's a rotten business, terrible margins. They they got 500 refrigerated distribution centers in some of the highest income zip codes in the United States. They bought a logistics system that allows them to do things they could not have done. So as you watch Amazon, I'd be looking at their investments because my guess is you're going to see a lot more investment in logistics because that shipping costs has to be brought back under control for Amazon to become a valuable company. Okay, great. My second question about this chart is the sort of return to the investment cycle, the startup mm-hmm. phase where they're burning cash. I think of a startup as one of the key advantages to being in that phase of your life cycle is usually you're very focused as a business on one particular market. One thing that jumps out at me, especially amid all this massive investment that's taking place for Amazon, is that it's in a wide variety of markets simultaneously. So how do we reconcile those two elements together, this kind of startup phase, my stereotype of them being focused with the the fact that Amazon is so touching so many different markets at the same time. I think the focus in Amazon is not so much on dominating a business, but changing the business. So the way they think about it is they're in the same business they were 10 years ago. That business is whatever business they're in, where the status quo is not that efficient. Amazon is extraordinarily good at detecting the softest spots in the status quo. What I mean by that is in almost every business, companies have easy ways of making money that allow them to subsidize more difficult ways. So in retailing, it used to be the high-priced customer who never did any you know, shop compar- shopping comparisons, who walked into the store and bought whatever they needed to on the spur of the moment. That's what allowed you to run those sales, right? If you think about the department stores. Amazon detected that weak spot and went after it. And in every business, it goes after. That's what it does. So if, you're, if they come into the financial services business, they're, going in, they're looking at banking and say, why are banks charging you know, $40 for a wired transfer? That's a really easy business to be in. So what they do is they go after the weakest links in the business. So the way to think about it is Amazon is extremely focused, not so much on what is specific to the business, but what's, what the weak spots are and going after them. So I, you know, the way I describe Amazon, lots of words I used to describe, they have patience built into their DNA. I mean, this company is the most patient company I've ever known. I mean, if you think about it, they started Amazon Prime, which I think we will talk about later in this. Now, 2004, and I was one of the earliest, earlier Prime members. They've lost money on Prime for almost all of its existence. I think it's finally turning the corner, and we'll talk about why that might be. 
But that's 14 years of being willing to lose money before you eventually get that nirvana. No other company on the face of the earth has that much patience. And that's built into their DNA. It's almost, and it's not just Jeff Bezos. It's built all the way through the culture. They're taught to basically be patient and wait. And they've been able to do that in every business they've been in. So that, that trumps focus every single time. Because you have a young startup, not only they're focused, they're impatient. They're impatient because their venture capitalists are impatient. They need to make money quickly. So what's, it's a reason two-thirds of startups don't make it. So I think they have an advantage over most startups from that perspective. That's a great point. You hit on something that I know I'm very eager to explore in more detail, which is the prime business. You've mentioned, touched on it a couple of times. This path to profitability and path to value add, I want you to describe to us how you see that playing out because you've sort of affirmed that multiple times and you've sketched out, but can you play out the scenario for the path to profitability for the prime business? Okay, to understand the prime business, you go to, got to go back in history. When they first offered it, I think it was seventy nine ninety nine a year. And they had only about 3 million people sign up. And the number didn't actually budge very much for the first six or seven years. But between 2004 and 2010, the prime membership roles didn't increase very much. But what they were doing was they were training the people on prime to expect great deals, shipping costs for free. Even in two, And then in 2011, the number of prime members starts to climb exponentially. You could see them shifting focus from understanding the prime membership business to building up the roads. But even in 2014, if you looked at the economics of the prime business, it made no sense as a standalone business. I mean, think about it. You're charged $99.99, about $100 a year in the U.S. for getting a prime membership. That if you look at their shipping costs per member, it worked out about $350 per member in 2013. So basically, you're collecting 100 and giving up free shipping of 350 If I stop right there, if this were a Harvard Business School case, you'd think, that's crazy. But over time, here's what's happened. Those prime members have actually changed their shopping habits to buy more stuff on Amazon. I think in 2016, the estimate was a typical prime member spends $1,000 to $1,500 more than a non-prime member. Of course, that's not all pure profit because the profit margin on that might be only 6 7 or 8%, but they're buying more stuff from you. I can, I can tell you personally, when I want to buy things now, I often will buy an item that's on prime and pay 5% more than buy a non-prime item. It's changed the way I shop. And it's not just me. There are 100 million prime members. So here's what's happened. You're now collecting, I think, $120 a year. The shipping costs have started to decrease because Amazon has taken control of its logistical you know, management. So, they're try so you can almost see the lines start to get closer. And I think in 2018, the lines might have crossed. In other words, you're not making money yet, but you're breaking even. But here's what you've gained along the way. Remember I said Amazon is a disruption machine. It's like Attila the Hun goes after a business. It now has an army it can use to go after any business it wants. And I'll give you a very simple example. The week after Amazon bought Whole Foods, I started getting emails from Amazon saying, would you be interested in getting prepared food delivered to you from Whole Foods? They have a roster of 110 million people. 
that they can use to turn loose on any business they're interested in. And that's an incredible plus. And that's what we often miss if you look at Prime Standing alone, is the power of that army and what it gives Amazon in the marketplace. So to go back to an earlier topic quickly, because I think it's relevant when you talk about Amazon's power in the marketplace is the is what you talked about, the regulatory risk and the fact that there's sort of a target on Amazon from the right, from the left, from a lot of different sources. And you didn't, you talked in your last piece about how that's a potential catalyst and it hasn't played out, but the stock has sold off anyhow. But I'm curious how, um, is that something that you feel that you need to, when you, when you dealt with this with Facebook, you explicitly modeled in lower growth to demonstrate the conservative case and why that might still play out well with, with Amazon. Is that something that you are modeling in or is it just more of a yeah, given? Because in the case of Facebook, it was different, right? You had a privacy scandal. You knew that laws, restrictions, regulations were coming down the pike. And it's played out, right? Governments have started doing it. You knew lawsuits were coming. So in a sense, it was a very, it's like the, I, I did a post when Volkswagen had its emission scandals. And I explicitly modeled in the effects of those scandals. Amazon is, a, there's no scandal around Amazon. The problem with Amazon is, in a sense, they have no defenders in the right places. As you said, the right doesn't like them. The left doesn't like them. You know, Bernie Sanders wants to put them out of business. Donald Trump wants to put them out of business. That's a very bad place for a company to be. And it is going to manifest in ways that are subtle. For instance, Amazon raised, um, if you remember, raised with, uh, I think, the wage they pay Amazon employees for $15 an hour. Yeah, but in October. They didn't do it out of the goodness of their hearts. You know why they did it? It was to actually kind of put a slow, because states were thinking about putting restrictions on Amazon. And this is, they were saying, look, we're a good company. We treat our employees well. I don't know how will it work, but sometimes the costs are not going to be an antitrust suit. It's going to be the preemptive actions that Amazon has to take to kind of stay under the radar. So in India, for instance, where which is one of the markets they're very ambitious about, this might manifest itself in a way that where they're less aggressive than they otherwise could have been because now with Flipkart, and that, in fact, one of the reasons they were glad that Walmart bought Flipkart is that it had been Amazon versus Flipkart. At some point in time, nationalistic factors might have come into play, which is a Flipkart is an Indian company. Amazon is an interloper from the US. We've got to protect our own. So as Amazon increasingly looks outside the U.S., what it might have to do is something it's never done historically, is restrain itself from growing as fast as it can. And that is the cost I'm building in when you see the growth. So that's why I said my story is an optimistic story, because if anything, they're going to get an internal constraint on how quickly they can grow. Because if they try to be too aggressive, my fear, if I'm Amazon, is that there's going to be a pushback from places that I don't control. That's that's fascinating. We spoke with Brad Stone, who had, who wrote the Everything Store, but also just wrote an article about their India efforts. And we kind of, he pointed out that China was sort of the, one of their most notable failures that he could think of that came to mind. And so India is almost like the next best growth market to go into it but you're right that there's sort of also there's still local constraints even 
before Walmart enters. And then if Walmart enters, that only increases the competition and the, the challenge there for them. Uh, and I think China is an interesting illustration of the types of environments where, well, you know, why Amazon failed in China. It's not because they could not pull off success in China, but because in China, you don't, it's not a free market in any sense of the word. The government has its fingers on the scale and essentially Amazon knew that there was no way, even if they wanted to be aggressive, that they could go up against Alibaba and win or against a local online retailer and win simply because the Chinese government would not have let it happen. So I think what when you look at India, what uh, what Amazon has to be nervous about is pushing things so aggressively that the Indian government starts to behave like the Chinese government. They haven't so far, but that might change. So I think it is true that Amazon did not did not pull off the China coup, but I think we underestimate how much of an effect the Chinese government had in that particular process. And that is something that Amazon has to think about as it goes around the world. Not every government is as benign as the US or the European, and even in Europe, they're getting pushback, right? I mean, so in a sense, you're starting to see that nationalistic factor kick in, which is big bad U.S. company coming after our small, poor local competitors. We've got to protect them. Right. One of the sort of the flip side to this was, at, at least as I understood, your the distribution of potential outcomes for Amazon was fairly heavily skewed to the right, even if even if it did, you know, it was overvalued at the time you wrote it up. How much of a factor does that play in how you consider your own positioning? I know that because there's a range of outcomes, how much do you think about the fact that even amid what we're saying, there's still a fat right tail that Amazon could fall out on and that it could still become a big winner in a way that Apple may not have that sort of upside or whatever? It's how you reconcile why you have buyers and sellers on a stock, right? I've sold short on Amazon, but if you told me you bought Amazon, I'm not going to try to talk you out of your position because here's one reason why you might Amazon, buy Amazon. You might not buy it because you like the present value of their cash flows. You're buying it for the same reason. You buy a slightly out-of-money option, which is when you make money, you make tons of money. And as investors, we know that that plays a role in how we invest. So if you're invested in Amazon, it might not be because you think the stock is undervalued. In fact, you might even think the stock is mildly overvalued. But you like that tale of the distribution. It's like buying that, you know, one what is it, $1.5 billion lottery ticket. You, right. in a sense, have a lottery ticket in Amazon. And that kind of affects some investors' decisions. It's not irrational. It's part of why people invest. So when I sell short, it's a re- it's a cautionary note. It's one reason why I've historically not sold short on Amazon is that tail can kill you when you're a short seller because you can eventually be right, but you're bankrupt before you before you're proved to be right. So the long tail was one reason why I've held off, and I had to think long and hard before pulling the trigger on the short sale because that tail still terrifies me. It's one reason I put a I, I put a limit buyback to close out my short sale. I almost hit it. The limit buyback that I put back was at 1450. I, you know, I sold short at 1950. I put a limit buyback at 1450 because the minute that's hit, I, you know, I, you know, this is not an investment I want. I don't want to be short on Amazon for the long term. I mean, it'll, all it'll do, even if I'm right, is create ulcers. So it is something to factor in whether you're long or short, that long tail. And that's something people need to remember. 
Traditional intrinsic valuation acts like payoffs are symmetric, upside and downside are leveled off, but that's not true. You have an expected value, but you have long tail distributions and a tail can stick out on either side. It can be a long positive tail, which is good if you're long, or it can be a long negative tail, which is terrible if you're long. You could go bankrupt, you could be distressed. So those are things that, that we intuitively bring into our investment decision that we need to also more consciously bring into valuation. Okay, that, that's I, I like that a lot. I wanted to get into the foren- not forensics, but a little bit deeper into the numbers just for a couple questions that a listener asked us and that we've brought up with some of our guests on Amazon, which I think the listener is skeptical about Amazon. And they asked, they, they pointed out that research and development seems to grow proportionally with revenue over the long time, which the listener ties to patterns that they had seen in Enron and wondered if that was questionable. And so I wanted to bring that up and just if that stood out or anything like that for you. And also how Amazon, how is Amazon as far as reporting its free cash flows, as far as accounting for things like capital leases, do is anything stand out? You obviously uh, look at tons of companies' financial statements. Does anything stand out from the way that Amazon reports their figures on, on, on the cash flow statement especially, but then also with that R&D line and just how that seems to fit into their business. I think by R&D, you're talking about the technology and development line, which is not just R&D for Amazon. It's their investment in their cloud business, the service, etc. cetera. The, re- the, the reader is right in a sense. With growth companies, you expect some scaling benefits, which is as the company gets larger, you'd expect the cost that you think are fixed costs to become a smaller percentage of revenue even though they might grow in dollar terms. And it's that's not happening at Amazon. But I think with Amazon, you got to also factor in the second life that they've taken on, which is they want to behave like a startup again. And I think that that is why I would cut them some slack on not having those economies of scale, because they did show those economies of scale pre-2010, when they looked like they were settling into a more mature phase. It's the 2011 to 2018, but much of that reflects the fact that they're going after being a growth company again. Now, that is always a, a problem because if you don't pull it off, you end up with these huge costs. I'll tell you the company where that would trouble me more, even though it's kind of a, it's Netflix. Netflix, it's equivalent of R&D's content costs. And the problem with Netflix, it's content cost scales up. Actually, it's grown faster than its number of users. That is a real problem. With Amazon, I'm willing to cut it some slack. I, and I would watch the technology development cost. My guess is you're going to start to see them go down, but also what's the shipping cost? Even more than the technology cost, what you're looking for are economies of scale on shipping costs. Because if that doesn't happen, that's going to drown them. So watch both costs, track them through time. But right now, it's not a red flag. As for the reporting at Amazon, actually, it's a pretty good company in terms of being transparent. It's, uh, it doesn't play games. But one reason they don't play games is they know investors are incredibly lazy when it comes to Amazon. So they can report negative cash flows, but nobody cares because as long they train the market to expect revenue growth. So they can be completely open and honest saying, oh, we're losing billions of dollars, but investors seem to blow it back. So that's, I, I talk about the power of narrative and how for me, one of the measures of a great CEO or a great top management is they craft a narrative that drives the market rather than let the market craft a narrative that they have to play by. Amazon has been masterful at setting the story that the markets play by. 
I mean, you got to just admire the way they've got markets jumping through hoops based on what they want the market to do. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a case study of how companies can craft a narrative. And when you craft the narrative, who cares what the numbers are? It's something that Tesla does well sometimes, but then Elon Musk gets distracted and does other stuff on the side. But I think when you get a story stock like Amazon and, or, or Tesla, it's a story that drives the prices. And if it's a story, then you can be completely open and honest about the numbers. Because in a sense, as long as the numbers are consistent with the story you're telling, investors will cut you a huge amount of slack. That's we with Bradstone, we talked about the way, for example, the HQ2 narrative and how it's, of course, timed around the holiday season. So everybody's thinking about Amazon as news leaks. And this was he said this even before the recent spurt of news that came over the weekend. And then we had our colleague on and we were talking about the financial statements. And he talked about how Mark Penikoff and he talked about how the financial statements are almost he primarily uses them as a tool to confirm that the company is staying true to the narrative. And so it's just, again, just kind of, it's just fascinating how they, how they work through that. And yeah, and there's sort of consistency, how that helps them hire talent, attract talent, Mm -hmm. attract investors and so forth. So Amazon was the biggest hire at the Stern business school. Stern is a NYU is traditionally been an investment banking trading school. Amazon was one of our biggest hirers last year. So it tells you something about how the world has shifted on its axis. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mike, you, you have some couple more questions that you wanted to get to? Yeah, I just had one more sort of parting shot for you, Professor. Yeah. And that's, uh, we know our listeners are sometimes uh, more novice investors and they're interested in the mechanics of valuation. So I was hoping that you could leave them with a summary of your thought process about what kind of modeling techniques are more appropriate for an investor that's trying to understand Amazon's present value. It looked to me like you took a sum of the parts discounted cash flows approach. Mm -hmm. I just think it would be useful to our listeners to hear a thought process around how you start to approach the valuation mechanically. Don't start mechanically. That's that's part of the problem. We start with a spreadsheet and think of valuation as a model. You're already sunk. Start with a story. And with Amazon, that's what I started with. And I discovered very quickly that I was telling three different stories, one for Amazon Cloud, one for Amazon Business, and one for Amazon Prime. And it's very difficult to keep the stories all within one story. So once I decided that, the valuation kind of reflects my storytelling. To me, everything starts with a story. I can value companies with a pencil, a paper, and a calculator. I was going to say an abacus, but I'm not that old. I don't need an Excel spreadsheet. We've become far too dependent on models and metrics and mechanics. And we've kind of lost touch with what it is that makes valuations come alive. Keep it simple. Keep it focused. And uh, to me, the craft part of valuation is converting stories into valuation inputs. And that's why my valuation models are built around relatively few inputs, right? Revenue growth, margins, and reinvestment. That's basically what every one of my valuations is built on. And what it allows me to do then is whatever story I have, it allows me to focus that story on how they're going to affect the numbers. So keep it simple, keep it focused, and always start with a story for your company because you don't invest in an Excel spreadsheet. You invest in a story. And if your story is right, I don't care how good or bad you are at modeling, your investments are going to be okay. Okay. 
It sounds like prioritize the thought process and then figure out which tools will fit later on. Uh, that's good, exactly. good words and keeps us from bogging. You diagnose the problem before you pull out your surgical tools. You start cutting me up before finding out what's wrong with me. I mean, all I am going to have is, is, is slicing. My, my body's going to get sliced up in places it shouldn't be sliced up. There would have to be and something really wrong with right you <laughs> for me to cut you <laughs> up, Professor. It would have to be a big emergency, and uh, we'd have to be very far from all that's, that's exactly That's exactly what equity research analysts do when they pull an Excel spreadsheet and start plugging numbers in because they're in a hurry to get evaluation done. Okay. Great. Well, stay in one piece, I guess. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, yeah, that, that's good. Good place to end. And thank you so much, Professor. Fascinating company and fascinating to hear your thought process on it. And uh, as always, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening. Professor Demonerin is one of the best and we're thrilled he joined us. We may even release a special holiday season tribute for him, so stay tuned. Speaking of which, Thanksgiving is this week and Black Friday Cyber Monday looms, as does the last installment of our Amazon series. We're talking with Priya Anand of The Information, and I think it gives a nice last touch to this review of Amazon, so watch out for that next week. In December, we're covering the Case Learning Shorting Conference and doing a couple year-end specials, so we hope you listen in. You can email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with feedback, questions, or requests. Please leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to Behind the Idea. We're available on just about every podcast platform. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks so much for your support. Happy Thanksgiving, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.